The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I also like to remind you each and every week, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hud Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? To subscribe to Chen's letter, you do need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, put your name on a waiting list, and Chen will accept new subscribers during the first two weeks of January in 2016. You can subscribe to my newsletter at miningstocks.com stocks.com anytime. Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I'd like to encourage you to keep your questions uh, and comments coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, uh, Taylor at gmail.com. Also, follow me on Twitter at Jay Taylor Media. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Orion Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, and Kalinex Resources. I've titled today's show, America's Declining Power, the Dollar and Gold. Richard Mayberry and Daniel McAdams are our guests today. Thanks to America's flawed foreign policy, Russia has gained and the U.S. has lost influence in the oil-rich Middle East. Meantime, the U.S. is entering the South China Sea to constrain China, Russia's closest ally. Under their leadership, the BRICS are seeking to overthrow the United States dollar as the world's reserve currency and to deter the U.S. military from threatening their sovereignty. With the United States dollar backed by petroleum and the United States losing its power in major oil-producing regions of the world, what might that mean for the dollar's purchasing power and for the price of gold? Insights into these topics will be sought from two geopolitical experts, our guests today, Daniel McAdams and Richard Mayberry. Well, this week I had to report for jury duty, so I'm not able to be at the mic 
to do this show live, as I usually am, but but that, in fact, did give me a chance to talk to my guest, Daniel and Richard, before making these introductory remarks. So let me offer some of my thoughts that are related to what you will hear a little later in the show over the next 45 minutes or so. From both Daniel and Richard, you will hear that you can't take at face value what you hear from our mainstream media about wars and our overseas policies. It is the U.S., not China or Russia, that is the dominant world power now. And it is the U.S., not China and Russia, that are, at this time in our history, the aggressor nation. I am not saying that Russia and China are pure or good, but realizing that it is the U.S. and NATO that is on the border of Russia now, and it is the United States that is not permitting China to control their own sea lanes right now, how can you make any analogy other than to say that it is the United States that is the aggressor nation in the world now? Now let me switch to a topic that at first may seem totally unrelated, but believe me, it is not unrelated. I'm talking about the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. I have been of the opinion that the Fed can never raise interest rates again because its policies, as well as those of central banks around the world, are driving the world into a deflationary depression because, in fact, through quantitative easing, these central banks are destroying capitalism. They're destroying capitalism because they're not allowing capital to be priced. I believe with all my heart this is true, and my own inflation-deflation index is demonstrating that the direction of things now are decidedly deflationary. Despite trillions of dollars of new money creation over the past couple of years, the global economy is rolling over. Yes, true, a few stocks are rising, but the vast majority of stocks, even in the United States, are in decline. To keep a mirage of prosperity, the last thing the con artists at the Fed can afford is for stocks to crash. And if rates rose dramatically, there is no doubt that is what would happen. So I believe now, as in the past, that the Fed is mostly head faking when it talks about raising interest rates. However, there may be one major reason why they actually will allow rates or they will be forced to allow rates to rise in December, which brings me back to geopolitics. With Obama now reversing his position and putting troops into Syria next to Russian and Iranian troops, and with the U.S. sending a destroyer into South China Sea to tell China that she has not no rights to control her own sea lanes, is there any doubt that the military-industrial complex that now owns and controls behind the Federal Reserve and our government is not itching for a war with China and Russia? Now let me ask you this. If China and Russia form their own trading block and banking system, which is what they're working to do, and that includes a majority of the world's population, think in terms of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, as well as many other nations friendly to Russia, such as Iran and Iraq, and several other Middle Eastern countries as well, and the U.S. is at war with China, who else but the Federal Reserve is going to buy U.S. Treasuries? And if only the Fed is buying U.S. Treasuries, what will that do to confidence in the U.S. dollar? The only way the Fed will be able to induce anyone to buy U.S. Treasuries at some point in time will be to allow rates to rise. Otherwise, the Fed will be the only buyer of Treasuries, especially at these or even negative interest rates. 
Let me know what your thoughts are on this matter. Send your comments to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because coming up next will be Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity to talk about the reasons behind the waning influence of the United States in the Middle East and Russia's growing influence there. Also, Daniel may offer some ideas about America's saber-rattling in the South China Sea. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Daniel McAdams. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Welcome, Daniel, and thanks for joining me again. Hi, Jay. It's so good to talk to you again. It is really good to catch up with you again, and we haven't talked much recently, but a lot has changed since you and I last spoke, in the Middle East especially. Russia and Iran have come together uh, to aid Assad in Syria, and with that, it seems as though the U.S. has lost some of its influence in the Middle East. Would you agree that that's the case? I think that is the case, and I think it's primarily because, for, for all, by all measurements, the uh, less than one-month-old Russian uh, military operation against the uh, extremists in Syria has been far more effective than a year of U.S. bombing. And uh, so I think, you know... These kinds of things speak louder than words, really. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think uh, Russian action in Syria has gotten the attention of not only the Syrians, but certainly the Iranians, as you point out, uh, but also the Iraqis. And further east, the Afghanis are also paying attention. So I think there is a, there's sort of a, a sense of a geopolitical shift. And I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I, I do certainly have the sense that uh, with the change of the facts on the ground, the sort of broader, as I say, ge- geopolitical facts are also changing, and they're not changing in Washington's favor. 
as far as uh, being the leader of the world and the exceptional nation. And I think it's just simply a function of the U.S. policymakers falling victim to believing their own propaganda and left wondering why things didn't work out the way the propagandists uh, promised that they would. Mm-hmm. So things have, I think, definitely changed in the past two or three weeks, Jay. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like uh, the Federal Reserve propaganda in the economic sphere as well, just believing it and keeping continuing to doing, do things even when it doesn't work. Well, I wonder, why do you think has Russia become more aggressive in helping Syria now? I mean, they've been on Syria's side for so long. Do you think the refugee situation has something to do with it? Or what, what do you think might have triggered uh, Putin and, and Russia um, to, get, to come together with Iran to come to the aid of Assad? Well, I think we should remember that Russia has had, I guess I should say the Soviet Union, has had a naval base in Syria since, I think, 1957. Oh, uh-huh. So the Russians and Syrian, Russians slash Soviets and Syrians have been allies for, for a very long time. This is not some sort of a new alliance. Um, you know, what happened to, to uh, trigger the latest Russian military activity, which I must admit I was surprised to see direct Russian involvement, but what triggered this was a request from Assad, we need you to help us uh, take care of this problem. But I think the, the, the deeper uh, factor for the Russians was they, I believe, had a sense that Assad was about to go. Uh, his military has been fighting a, a horrific war for the past four years. They are they're very tired. They've, they've you know, uh, whereas the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda have had a constant uh, influx of new troops from around the world. Uh, The Syrian army has just had itself to rely on, so they're very tired. I think the refugee crisis had something to do with it, but I think the the, uh, Russians saw the imminent collapse of Assad, and I think they also sniffed a little bit of U.S.-slash-Turk-slash-Saudi actual intervention, physical intervention, uh, at the heels of of Assad's collapse. And I think that might have been informed slightly by what happened in Libya, where when they didn't go in, Libya became an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. I think, and this is my surmising, but I think the U.S. planned to actually lead some sort of a ground operation after Assad was gone. And I think the Russians saw that once the facts were changed on the ground with U.S. action, they would have almost zero room for maneuver. Mm -hmm. So that's my suspicion as to the the origin, but uh, the fact of the matter is and remains, no matter what you think of him, Assad is a legitimate internationally recognized uh, ruler of Syria, and when the head of a sovereign state requests an ally to provide assistance, that, according to international law, is a perfectly legal and acceptable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly makes sense. What would happen? What would have happened to Russia? Let's say if uh, if Assad had fallen and the U.S. had gained some some control of that country, or or at least messed it up so badly that Russia was chased out. It would have been a strategic uh, setback to Russia, I think, definitely. Mm-hmm. But in but in more practical terms, Russia saw thousands of jihadist fighters uh, that had escaped not only from Russia but from countries bordering on Russia uh, to go and fight in Syria. And these people had become not only radicalized uh, uh, theologically, but had become trained in military tactics and techniques. And I think Russia was terrified, especially after uh, problems with Chechnya and everything in the Caucasus for a number of years. They were terrified of these people coming back home 
and who knows what would have happened. So I think there was certainly a, a matter of their own national interest at stake in their decision as well. You and I have talked about ISIS uh, on you know in our discussions before, and you've talked about how in some cases the U.S. was using actually using ISIS as an ally, and other times it was killing ISIS and you know trying to to destroy them. Uh, Putin has left it be known, in fact, that anything they can help, they're not going. If they can help it, they're not going to allow uh, radical Muslims to get into their country. Uh, do you think that Putin is being more effective in the fight against radical Islamics than than the than the West has been or the U.S. and NATO has been? Well, I think that the Russians have more direct experience with the consequences. You know, we had 9-11, which was a tragedy, but the Russians have had a number of terrorist attacks that have been undertaken by radicalized uh, Muslims. Yeah. Uh, in, in many in Moscow, many bombings. So they are more acutely aware of it, and I think they feel more of an existential threat because Russia is, uh, to a large degree, a Muslim country. They have an enormous Muslim population. Right. And so I think there are certainly is matters of concern. But, but you know what always, what always makes me laugh, Jay, is, you know, the, especially the neocons back here, they say, oh, well, uh, you know, Russia just went in there to prop up their ally, Assad. Okay, well, they have an alliance with Assad. But doesn't the U.S. have an alliance with Israel right. and, and Egypt, for that matter? Wouldn't we go in and, and quote, prop up Israel if they were under attack uh, from an Arab neighbor that looked like they were about to overthrow Israel? Of course, that's that's the nature of alliances. Sure, um, it's neither good nor bad; it just is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, the this is sort of this hypocrisy that we are the only ones allowed to have allies. Mm-hmm. No one else is allowed to have interests mm-hmm. unless they coincide with ours. And the world doesn't work that way. And the world becomes resentful when the U.S. expects it to work that way. Right. I guess it's a little bit like the nuclear bomb. We'll decide who who has the right to have it and who doesn't. And of course, we're the only nation that ever used it so far. Uh, exactly, Jay. So exactly. it's uh, you know I don't know uh, why we can so easily overlook that. But um, well, who who besides Israel and Saudi Arabia? I guess you maybe Egypt is an ally of the United States. But how and how firm do you think? Um, aside from Israel, how firm do you think Saudi Arabia or Egypt, for that matter, might be as allies for uh, to us? Well, what's interesting that I noticed is, you know, Egypt is now ruled by a military dictatorship, and that's because the Arab Spring that the U.S. was behind uh, didn't quite produce the results that it wanted. <laughs> it produced a Muslim Brotherhood-led uh, yeah. government, which the U.S. was opposed to. So now we back a military dictator. But what which was very interesting, and I think this does also suggest a larger geopolitical shift, is that the Egyptians have chimed in in favor of Russian airstrikes on Syria. Oh, interesting. And that directly goes against uh, the U.S. And also U.S. allies, some would say U.S. puppet, Jordan, has also signaled agreement with some Russian moves in Syria. So this idea that, this U.S. idea that we have all of these countries in our back pocket, the arrogance that goes along with that can very easily crumble when circumstances change and it looks like there might be a new kid on the block. Very interesting. Well, um, with the loss of influence in the in the Middle East, how are the neocons reacting to that, Daniel? I noticed there were a couple of articles at the Ron Paul Institute website where Secretary of De- Defense uh, is saying that the United States military, we've got to start putting men on the ground in Syria. I mean, are we looking to have a hand-to-hand combat with Russia and with Iranian soldiers or what? 
But just think about this, Jay, and this is, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone how really everyone thinks that the neocons are so pro-America and pro-military. They yeah. hate the military. They despise these soldiers. They think they're just a bunch of boobs. Yeah. And uh, if, if anyone doubts that, just think of this, this idea that they're going to put American soldiers on the ground, huddled together with these, uh, these rebels that the Russians are act- actively bombing. You know, the Russians have said, if you have moderates there, give us the coordinates and we won't bomb them. And the U.S. said, we're not going to talk to you. Wow. Uh, so, so instead, we're going to put American troops there to have Russian bombs fall on them. Well, then you know, that would give us an excuse to go to war with Russia, wouldn't it? Which would, the neocons would I probably love more than anything else. Right. Didn't Chris Christie suggest that's what we should do? Yeah, and McCain and Lindsey Graham and all yeah. of these creeps, you know, that's, yeah. that's exactly what they want. It won't affect them, or so they think, until a nuclear bomb goes off in Washington. Yes. You know, but yes. Um, they're just crazed. And so the question is what their reaction is. Their reaction, as usual, is just to double down. You know, yeah. we need to have more weapons over there. We need to put troops on the ground. Yeah. But what's interesting about what Secretary Carter said about putting U.S. troops, we may have to have some ground operations in Syria and Iraq, is that less than 24 hours after Carter said that, the Iraqis called up and said, Whoa, hold on a minute. We don't want American troops. We don't want Iraq invasion 3.0. Uh, we've got enough troops. Thank you very much. Wow. Please, please don't. Don't. <laughs> please don't. Wow. And uh, that follows up on um, what happened the previous week where the, the Iraqis were thinking of asking the Russians to help out with some bombing of ISIS in Iraq. And the U.S. sent, uh, I think they sent the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff over to twist some arms and say, you better not do this. If you do this, we're not going to help you. Uh, he came home and said, okay, we convinced the Iraqis not to do it. A couple of days later, the Iraqi parliament voted to allow Russia to bomb ISIS on Russian territory. Mm. So you have Iraq also falling by the wayside, not wanting U.S. troops and asking the Russians to get involved. Wow, with all that blood and treasure, uh, the treasury that we have expended and now... Uh, even Iraq is against us. That's it's incredible. It's incredible failure in middle in the Middle East of not just this president's policy, but of course the laying the groundwork for this disaster was the previous president. How so, ungrateful they are! You know, we went and bombed their country to Yeah, I mean, why shouldn't they be thankful? We only killed uh, how many hundred thousand of people? Well, why shouldn't they love us for that? Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm just it, it's it's really sad. I just one more thought I want to ask you about because we're going to have Richard Mayberry on this show. Uh, in after the commercial break, but uh, and we're going to talk about uh, geopolitics as well. But one of the things I was wondering, Daniel, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, it, as the U.S. seems to have lost its influence in the Middle East, it's projecting its presence in the South China Sea more. And China left it be known that it doesn't like that very much. Uh, do you think there might be some sort of uh, trying to make up for what's being lost in the Middle East? Do you think the U.S. may be looking to project its power and to hold China down? I mean, after all, you know, we've left it be known we don't like them building their islands there. Uh, and we've just put together the TPP, which uh, I believe is probably meant to try to to get, uh, you know, countries not to, to form too strong commercial alliances with China to sort of, um, sort of isolate China if we can so we can retain our power and presence in, uh, in that part of the world. But do you have any thoughts about what might be going on there? Well, I think, you know, the, the, uh, 
the argument that the U.S. had for, you know, last week, its incursion into the 12-mile exclusion zone around these reefs that China is building up, is that we've got to protect the sea lanes. We've got to protect international commerce, which really doesn't make much sense when you think about the fact that in the South China, through the South China Sea travels 80% of Chinese trade. Mm-hmm. So why on earth would the Chinese want to hinder uh, global trade or sea lanes in any way, shape, or form? And, you know, Jay, we did a, we did a Ron Paul Liberty Report segment uh, on this very topic last week. And Dr. Paul, I think, made the very good point that if all they were trying to do is to make sure they wanted to keep the sea lanes open, to make sure to let them know that we want to keep uh, running goods and services through this area, why would they send a fully equipped warship? Right. Why not send a, some, a, a ship carrying some items or some goods or a trading ship? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, so it's, it's obviously saber-rattling. And, you know, the Chinese have built up two islands in that area. Uh, there are other countries. I think it was um, Thailand, I believe. One of the other countries in the area, they built up 48 islands. Wow. Uh, other countries have built up four or five or six. So everyone is doing it. They're all battling over this area. Uh, the only difference is that the U.S. wants to come in and throw its weight around. Uh, it would be another thing if China was blockading uh, trade, if it was doing something of that nature. Yeah. That would be a whole different story, but they've sure. shown no indication that they're interested in doing that. Right. On the contrary, they want to facilitate trade. Right. That's their bread and butter, otherwise they're toast. Well, I guess uh, Thailand and other countries, as long as they as long as they go along with the program of the neocons and the, uh, the NATO alliance, I guess... Uh, the United States, um, the large corporate interests that want to control things, then I guess we'll let them build their islands. But if they want to uh, practice their own sovereignty and remain independent, then we don't want that to happen because it looks as though, uh, I guess, nothing new in history, Daniel. If we go through history, we would find this is nothing new. Empires try to grab as much as they can, and they outspend themselves. They they put themselves into, into debt, and then ultimately uh, they sort of suffocate themselves. I'm afraid that's maybe what's happening. But uh, anyway, I thank you very much for your insights on all these matters, Daniel. Much appreciated. Uh, and all the best to you. And, and folks, uh, please support the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Go there and uh, check out Daniel's work. Ron Paul is there all the time and lots of other great contributors. So go to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and, uh, and follow all that Daniel and his group of people are doing. Thank you, Daniel. And we'll look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Well, we do have to go to commercial break now, but don't go away because coming up next will be Richard Mayberry, author of Richard Mayberry's U.S. and World Early Warning Report. Like Daniel, Rick Mayberry has great insights into geopolitics, so I want to ask him for his views on America's apparent decline in the Middle East and uh, compared to the rising influence of Russia there and how that may be related to the U.S. seeking to project more power uh, in uh, the South China Sea, uh, just as we've discussed with Daniel. Also, I want to get Rick's take on how all of this might be related to the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Might the dollar be in trouble uh, given some of the geopolitical events that are taking place? So don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Mayberry. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. 
This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calamex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Calinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Calinex by visiting Calinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Calinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm happy to have with me once again Richard Mayberry. He's the author of Richard J. Mayberry's U.S. and World Early Warning Report. It's an excellent newsletter, one I've been a subscriber to for many, many years now. And interestingly enough, the subtitle to Richard's letter is, quote, Adopting to and profiting from the collapse of the federal government's empire, end of quote. So we want to get some of Richard's ideas uh, today on how to do that with the abbreviated time we have. Never enough time with Richard. Um, but, uh, you know, I should mention, though, just um, so that you know, Richard is really a geopolitical guy. He really understands geopolitics as well as anybody I've ever met up with. But he also has a very good track record, more than very good, better than good uh, record in terms of his long-term investment Strategy. In fact, I was looking at his website, and he had 21 out of 23 uh, stock recommendations, going back some of them as early as 2001, but 21 out of 23 were up, and the average gain was just a whisker under 200%. So that's, that's very, very good. Congratulations, Richard, and thanks for joining me again today. Well, thanks, Jay. I appreciate that. I always enjoy being here. The, the public is so riveted on sports and entertainment these days that it's practically impossible to find any real substance out there in the news media today. And you are Amen. one of the very few few uh, broadcasters that do something of substance, and I congratulate you on it. Well, we try, because I think it's more important to understand why things are the way they are than, than to just accept them as they are and, and walk away at face value. So you, you really help uh, with that, and that's why uh, you know people should really subscribe to your letter. It's richardjmayberry.com, richardjmayberry.com. 
like to get you to talk today about a speech that you recently gave titled Global Uprising Against Washington's Empire. A few minutes ago, I was speaking to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and he gave some detailed reasons for the apparent loss of influence the United States has in the Middle East and, and some, uh, you know, the apparent rise of power of Russia there. Uh, but Daniel brings, he brings some really good insights, but more, I would say, down in the weeds than, than you generally do. Not that you don't have that information down in the weeds, but you also take a bigger picture, sort of a macro view of things uh, that I think that you add to the equation. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about what you think is going on now in the Middle East, where the United States is losing its impact, and then also to get you to talk a little bit about uh, what might be transpiring in Asia. It seems to me that the United States is trying to emasculate and perhaps contain China in, in, uh, you know, in, in the trade and the power of that part of the world. But uh, in your speech, you talked about a hatred for our government, not only by foreigners, but on the part of Americans as well. And, it, you know, if I were to watch TV, the mainstream, you know, I watch uh, CNBC, Charlie Rose, uh, you know, all the big name guys that you see on the mainstream. Basically, you know, as you just mentioned, bread and circus, uh, entertainment, sports and all that, you get the feeling that everything is just pretty good, pretty okay. But that's not necessarily the point uh, that you made in your speech. In fact, you said that there is something like 300,000 laws in America taking up 27 feet of shelf space. There are so many laws that the average American commits three felonies a day. Well, you know, I don't feel like a felon. I, I don't. What sort of thing might average people be doing that would that they'd be committing a felony? Do you have any sense of what what could that be? Well, the, my my favorite example that I like to use is that if, if you're uh, uh, a young person in your your family, your son or daughter, let's say seven years old. Uh, goes down to a pond or a lake or a creek, any freshwater body of water, and picks up a stone and skips that stone into the water, like we've all done many, many times in our lives, that's a felony. That's felony pollution. You're kidding me. No, according to federal law, that's federal, that's, that's felony pollution. And, and the federal government passes those kinds of laws all the time, as you say. They've got 300,000 laws that the, the typical American knows nothing about. No, of course not. And, and he goes about his life every day breaking these laws at the rate, on average, of three felonies per day, um, which means this is no longer a free country. Well, it also would mean, I would think, Richard, and probably there are a lot, that's probably an extreme example you gave, but there could be other things that might be a, a, a bit more problematic that we do without knowing they're against the law. And that would mean that the government then, if they knew that we were doing that, could use that against us to incarcerate us or to, if, we, if they didn't like our political position, for example, perhaps. Yeah, yeah they can always get you on something. Right. Um, and that's not what this country is supposed to be about, uh, yeah. but, but it is now. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned in your talk the Bill of Rights. As, as a matter of fact, you know, the founders of our country were concerned about the abuses of power of government. I mean, after all, that's why, we, that, that's why they uh, were courageous enough to risk their lives to kick out uh, the King of England out of, out of the United States, a tyrant that he was. And so, you know, they, they created the Bill of Rights. Uh, but you noted that the founders made some mistakes in their efforts for liberty to devise liberty, and one of them was that the Bill of Rights stopped at our borders. 
Why was that a mistake, and, and what have uh, been the consequences of that, Richard? Well, there's, there's a huge amount of American history that Americans are never taught because they attend schools that are owned or controlled by government agencies. And the teachers long ago realized that if they teach something that's embarrassing to the government, they're going to be called on the carpet. So they stopped teaching these things that the government does in other countries. And Americans today have, know nothing about it because our own teachers grew up in those schools and were not taught anything about it. And one of those things, as an example, is the conquest of the Philippines mm-hmm. in, in the Spanish-American War. The U.S. government decided that it, it was through uh, conquering the North America from coast to coast. It had taken all the land from the Indians, and now it went looking for more land to take. And they went abroad, and in, in, in 1898, they got into the Spanish-American War, and as a part of that... They conquered the Philippines, and in the process, they killed 220,000 Filipino men, women, and children. Good Lord. And Did the Filipino people re- remember that? Do they have that in their history books, I wonder? Yes. Yeah, they do, um, but what happened was the Japanese came along some years later and, and invaded them again, and that was even worse than the U.S. invasion. So they're more focused on the Japanese than they are the U.S. Oh. But, but nevertheless, there are a lot of them who don't have anything good to say about Americans, and that's part of the reason. But Americans know nothing about that. And my point is, and, and I know this from having been in a special operations squadron in the Air Force uh, in the 1960s and participating in this, um, the, the federal government has established a global empire in which it um, owns various dictators or tyrants around the world. They are its surrogates, and they fight wars for it. And the, the protections, the constitutional protections that keep you and I at least somewhat free, uh, at least up until 9-11, um, those do not apply to people outside the country. Hmm. And, and I participated personally in the, uh, the training of a lot of troops of, of dictators. Uh, my, my experience was in, in Central America. Um, and um, the American people know nothing about this. And it's why so many people outside the country hate Washington. And they don't necessarily hate America, but boy, they hate Washington because mm-hmm. they know Washington is backing up these dictators that are terrorizing them. Mm-hmm. And that's what a huge amount of this war that we're in today is all about, is people around the world are not protected by the Bill of Rights, and they have suffered greatly from these tyrants that are backed by Washington, and they want Washington to go away and leave them alone, which incidentally is the same thing that an awful lot of American conservatives and libertarians and even some Democrats want. They want the federal government to go away and leave them alone. And um, these wars are, are part of, of, of that. The, the federal government uh, essentially is a bunch of power holders or power seekers and power holders who, who want to expand their powers. And they do that as a regular routine thing. That's a huge amount of what's going on in the Mideast 
and in the South China Sea. All right, let me ask you, Richard, uh, so do you, do you see this issue with the Philippines in 1898 as being the start of American aggression overseas? And also, I, I would just make the observation uh, that was President McKinley during that time, who was put into office by none other than, uh, than John D. Rockefeller definitely was was uh, pushed him into office but i was just wondering you know the banking interests that were tied also uh, to the city of london to a great extent and a, a very interesting history that i've been reading recently by a, a, an author named angdahl gods of money uh, and uh, so was this the start of it richard when um when when mckinley uh, killed these 220,000 men women and children in the philippines was this the start of this abusive power by the united states uh, i I, I count it that way, although the U.S. government was meddling in Latin America especially uh, yeah. for, for many, many uh, scores of years before that. But uh, <clears throat> the Spanish-American War was the first incident where they went abroad uh, killing other people specifically for the purpose of establishing their empire. Mm-hmm. The previous incursions into other countries, the, the previous invasions, were ones uh, in which they were just a one-off situation, and it was not regarded as any kind of empire building. Uh, they were just meddling in other countries for the satisfaction of exercising their power. Um, but the Spanish-American came along, and McKinley made it very clear he was starting the American empire. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, you you were uh, a part of that empire. You were, you know, as a young person, not, you know, probably feeling that you were doing the right thing for your country, as most young men are when they're when they're go when they go into the military. You also should mention to our listeners were a teacher, so you know something about the educational side of this statist uh, inst- statist government that we have, a growing increasingly statist government. And I was just just thinking, you know, if Americans only understood what you're talking about, I think they would be very much opposed to what's going on. But they they don't know, they don't want to know, they're too much bread and circus, whatever. But uh, you talked also about uh, Marine Major General Smedley Butler. He, he really, uh, you know, in your speech, he said, don't take my word for it. Here's this great American Marine Major General Smedley Butler, who basically uh, questioned after he after 34 years of fighting for America's wars, you know, what was this all about? Why did he risk his life? And what was his conclusion? Yeah, he, he was really upset. After he got out of the Marines, he began looking at the reasons why he was being sent in to, to these wars all over the world. And um, he, he was doing that for 34 years and wound up with uh, not only with uh, being a major general, but... Um, he had two Congressional Medals of Honor. Two. That's almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so he began looking at the politics behind why he was risking his life for 34 years. Yeah. And he realized that he was helping build an overseas empire for Washington. That that's what all these wars were about that he had gotten into. Um, and he was outraged, and he started going around the country making speeches, trying to alert people to the fact that the federal government had built an overseas empire, and that the troops were actually being used for this empire. And um, unfortunately, he, he died in 1940. But before he died, he made the prediction that if the U.S. government did not stop meddling in other countries, we were going to wind up in a lot more of those countries' wars. 
And boy, was he right about that. Well, the American people just don't really know that. Again, again, you know, I think that most Americans don't understand that that we're hated overseas. Most Americans uh, believe the propaganda they get from the mainstream media, and they think that we're, you know, we're over there killing people for their own good, right? And we're we're doing all this. Well, we, we you know, yeah, we killed those two hundred and twenty thousand. Well, first of all, they don't know that. That's a fact. As you say, it's obscured from the history books. It's not there. They don't know about Smedley Butler. They've never been taught. So they don't know what the truth is. We want to focus now today, Richard, on the declining power of the United States in the in the Middle East. And this has seemed to come to the fore only recently. I mean, it's it maybe I'm sure it's been in the making for a long time. But but do you see this hatred towards the United States as part of the reason that we are losing our influence in the Middle East? Um, well, it's not we. It's the federal government. But uh, but yeah, the uh, the federal government it just it meddles in in practically the whole world. Um, it, there are, let's put it this way, 88% of all the governments on Earth receive some sort of support or, or just playing cash or uh, military training, some sort of help from Washington in return for dancing to Washington's tune. That's 88% of all governments are on the federal government's foreign aid payroll. Wow. Um, so they're running the world, um, and uh, pretty much all of it, and they, they do have some opposition, and that opposition is popping up in the Mideast more and more all the time, and in a lot of other places, too. The, the most recent one here now, um, which they are provoking, is uh, the situation in the South China Sea. Um, that one... That is really serious, really, really serious, and the mainstream press is paying almost no attention to it. Right. Uh, you've got, um, you know, the, the French, uh, French uh, strategic planners have a, a phrase they call the logic of war. And what that means is that when a government goes down a path to a certain extent, as it goes down the path to war, it starts throwing away options. They start making speeches and making threats and, mm-hmm. and spewing this bravado that means they are throwing away options until they get to the point where they have only one option left, and that is war. Mm-hmm. And, and the French call that the logic of war. They lock themselves into this path. Well, Washington has done that this week, and the mainstream press is paying no attention to it. Washington has locked itself into the logic of war with this South China Sea situation. And what's, what happened was they wanted to stop uh, Beijing from building these islands, and so um, they decided they were going to go ahead and invade the 12-mile limit around the Spratly Islands, and they said to themselves, now this is all out of defense news, it's just been reported. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, um, they said... We can't go invade the 12-mile limit and then just go away because then everybody will think we chickened out and went away. Mm-hmm. So we can't look like we're chickens. What we have to do is not only do this invasion, which happened this week, but we've got to keep going back and doing it over and over and over oh, again my goodness. so everybody knows we're serious. Wow. Now, they are locked into it now. They, they've done it once, and that means they've got to keep on doing it in their minds. Right. And, 
And what has happened in response to that is twice now, in the last few days, Chinese officials have used the word war when warning about what Washington is doing. Now, now governments do not use the word war unless the situation is really dire because they don't want to get locked into the logical war. But the Chinese are responding exactly that way. Yeah. Uh, usually they will talk about a dire situation or a serious matter or they'll use some kind of language like that, but they don't use the word war unless they really mean it. And what Beijing is doing is saying, we really mean it. It certainly seems, I mean, the Chinese have been mad as hell about this. They've really, they've really left that be known. So what you're saying is the Chinese and the U.S. are locking in. It looks like a certainty almost, Richard, now at this stage? Well, there's nothing in human affairs that's certain. But it's, it's, it's going in the direction that wars generally go uh, before they break out. Um, that's all you can really say is these, these people, you know, remember, uh, power, political power is like a drug. Um, it, there's a reason why people say it corrupts, because it does corrupt the morals and the judgment. People mm-hmm. get carried away with it. They, they get to feeling like there's some kind of God. And that's especially true for the U.S., because U.S. politicians have the most powerful military force on Earth. Right. So they're easily lured into this feeling that they are gods. And... Um, you know that's that's the direction they're headed. That's all you can say is they have locked themselves into this thing. They have committed to making one incursion after the other, uh, which you know what I call that when I'm describing U.S. foreign policy. I say U.S. foreign policy is mostly about poking sharp sticks at rattlesnakes. Right. And they have declared they plan to keep poking that rattlesnake. Right. Well, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> well, you know, Rick, I, I, I have to wonder, you know, because you have the formation of the BRICS led by, by China and Russia, uh, and, and they're, you know, have been opposed to the hegemony of the United States U.S. dollar and the way we've treated those countries post-World War II, uh, the IMF and so forth, and they're f- setting up their own financial institutions, their own lending institutions, their own IMF-like institution. And and a lot of our allies even are starting to seemingly get involved more with China uh, commercially, Australia, New Zealand, even England. And, uh, you know, I have to wonder if uh, if the United States might not end up being the isolated country because you, if, if the BRICS come together, Russia and China, uh, in alliance, and now in the Middle East with the oil-rich areas of the Middle East, I, I just wonder. Now, I have to ask you this because we've got what is really the petrodollar since the United States took gold away in 1971 when Nixon took gold away from the international um, dollar. And and to make the dollar, to put a bid under the dollar, Kissinger goes off to Saudi Arabia and arranges with the oil countries, starting with Saudi Arabia, to demand payment for oil uh, in dollars. Now, I'm wondering if the U.S. losing its influence and control of the markets of the Middle East, where there's a whole oh, tremendous amount of oil, if that might not be a threat to the dollar sometime, and already we're seeing China... Uh, net sellers of treasuries, Russia the same, and a lot of other countries looking to get out of the dollar. Do you think that's a threat to the dollar hegemony? Yeah. Uh, the situation in the South China Sea, I think, can aggravate it very easily and very quickly. Um, the, the Chinese government, um, 
I, I think probably already is secretly dumping dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that could accelerate this. Um, it's it's for sure that the the officials in Beijing are ticked off, and um, you know they are for sure looking for ways to retaliate. Maybe not ways that you and I will ever find out about. Mm-hmm. But to think that they're just going to sit there and watch the U.S. continue to invade their, what they regard as their waters, um, that's not going to happen. They're going to do something. And that's what the news media should be concentrating on right now, is what is Beijing going to do faced with this announcement that the U.S. is going to continually invade what they regard as their waters? Yeah, well, of course, the propaganda is that it's not us that's causing the trouble. You know, I mean, we we sent our NGOs into the Ukraine and had that elected government overthrown, and then we put in our own puppet. But but it's never us. I mean, the American people aren't supposed to know that we're taking that stick and poking the rattlesnake. It's it's always a rattlesnake that gets us first, right? Yeah, right, right. All the American people see is the rattlesnake strike. We're striking us, and so we have a right then. Right. To, we have a right and an obligation to go after them. Right. Uh, it's they, Putin, they or it's see, yeah. They never see the U.S. government poking the stick. They only see that rattlesnake strike, and and that's one of the most clever things about Washington's foreign policy is the the news media never looks behind. You know why. Do these other people hate us so much? Right. Well, Ron Paul said it, and he was booed off the stage when he was running for president. He said the reason they hate us is because we're over there. And I think he, you know, and that wasn't Ron Paul saying that. That was uh, the CIA, various people in the CIA saying that. But anyway, what I see here, Richard, I want to ask your opinion on this, the possibility, uh, you know, one of the things that that you talk about and very few other, um, let's say, Austrian-leaning thinkers talk about is monetary velocity and if the chinese and others and i don't think it's if i think it's now been established that chinese have been net reducing their holdings of treasuries and other countries have russia as well well uh if that starts to happen then you you uh, in your newsletter talk about overseas monetary velocity and domestic monetary velocity the idea that people dump their dollars and buy stuff or they exchange it for other currencies or for gold or whatever because they lose confidence. Do you think that we might be looking at a tipping point here from what has been more of a deflationary environment in many ways? I mean, commodity prices have been sinking very substantially since 2011. Uh, I think the stock market is, is potentially in big trouble as well. Uh, but, you know, on on balance, it's been a global economy that's been shrinking in spite of the fact, or I don't know if it's shrinking outright, but it hasn't been growing, in spite of the fact that trillions of dollars of quantitative easing has been injected. Uh, do you think that it might very well be a tipping point from this sort of deflationary, disinflationary environment to an inflationary environment? You've always been more of an inflationist long term than a deflationist. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I think uh, you're right there, and, and calling it a tipping point is a good is a good way of saying it. Uh, I don't know, I I don't know how confident I am about that because you know, uh, well we won't get into that, but but it's just uh, I've learned from experience that the more confidence I have in a prediction, the more likely it's going to be wrong. <laughs> good so, point. Uh, I think I could say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen, but. It sure looks like the stage is set for uh, foreign governments to attack the dollar 
in one way or another, other, uh, and it's likely to involve dumping dollars. Um, but it, but there, these are a bunch of really bad people, and Washington has picked fights with these really bad people. Mm-hmm. Well, what are these really bad people going to do? Um, they're going to hit back in whatever way they can, and I think um, a currency war is a, a really uh, high probability here. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this may be the tipping point when um, the alternatives to the dollar, like gold and silver, uh, really go wild. All right, so let's let's just talk briefly. We only have a couple of minutes here yet, Richard. In terms of uh, what are you telling your subscribers to do? Now, I know, just, just give us a general sense of it, and people need to subscribe to the letter to get specifics. But just in general, what are you telling people to do to prepare for this uh, for what could be a, a runaway inflationary environment? Well, um, nothing that I haven't always told them, which is have some uh, part of your portfolio in uh, precious metals, uh, gold, silver, platinum, palladium. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's better to own real stuff than to own something that can be produced on a printing press, like money. Mm-hmm. So uh, just the, the general... Trend our general uh, advice for anybody who happens to be listening, and every individual's case is different. But I would have at least twenty percent of my assets in those things that cannot be produced on a printing press, and gold and silver would be the top call, and then uh, platinum, palladium, real estate, classic cars, fine art, <laughs> you know. Um, just uh, stuff that that really is real stuff that governments can't uh, counterfeit. All right, very good. Well, you know, you also have done very well with some defense stocks. I guess realizing that inevitably the U.S. government is going to poke the rattlesnake, and the rattlesnake's going to strike back, and there's going to be an acceleration. Not that that's what you want, but that's the reality of where we're at. But in any event, uh, we are out of time, Richard. It always goes so fast. I do want to thank you again for being with us and also uh, suggest to our listeners that they go to richardjmayberry.com, richardjmayberry.com. Richard's newsletter is one of those can't-miss letters. It's one of the first things I read as soon as it comes across my desk, and it's uh, very reasonably priced, I might add. May I I point out, my subscribers have access to that speech, so if someone wants to subscribe to the newsletter... They will be able to um, read that. Speech. To read that speech, it's an excellent yeah. speech. It's in writing there, folks. So uh, take advantage of that, please do. Well, thank you, Richard. That's all the time we have, unfortunately, for this week. Uh, next week, economist John Williams will be with me to talk about his latest evidence for a declining dollar and prospects for hyperinflation. John always provides some provocative ideas outside of the mainstream, so you won't want to miss what he has to say next week. I do want to thank our sponsors and also Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you again for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. 
Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 